I would like to just uh, second what Dennis said. Uh, I, I think I have the best job on earth. Um, it's amazing to be able to take the gospel uh, to people who have never heard it or to help somebody that's hungry or hurting or helpless. And I know I couldn't do what I do if it weren't for people like you that uh, sacrifice and give and pray and send. And so please receive my thanks on behalf of 700 uh, other Alliance workers around the world. Um, <clears throat> as you said, my name is Pete. I, this is my second time being here. Um, so some of you may remember that I was with uh, one of the new arms of the Alliance called Envision. And Envision is the short-term arm of the church. Uh, and uh, it's exciting. We have 22 sites around the world, and it's exciting to see what God is doing. Um, literally last year, uh, by empowering churches like yours and people like you sacrificing, uh, we were able to share the gospel for the first time with over 200,000 people. It wasn't pastors and seminary trained. It was people that sit in a pew like you every Sunday, most of them teens um, that were able to go out. And so that's exciting. Um, we're in Burkina Faso where uh, I had started the site. We were able to uh, break our um, 400 well uh, threshold and we have now brought clean water to um, well over 160,000 people. Um. <clears throat> What's really cool about it is every one of those wells was in the backyard of a church. And so people came for clean water and left with living water. And we saw whole communities transformed. And it's become the tip of the spear for our church planning movement. Um, like I said, I'm with an Envision. And one of the things that we do is we do what they call a semester campaign. And what that is is once a year... We take about a six-month period of time, and we take on an issue uh, of suffering in the world. And we do it because that we believe that Jesus is the answer. And so we want to empower our church to understand and to make a difference. And so uh, the first semester campaign was uh, Wells and uh, Burkina Faso, and um, we were able to, to pay for almost 20 wells and... Um, we sent teams out to go do it, and it was uh, really neat. Well, this latest semester campaign, um, when I first heard it, I was a little bit like, uh, that doesn't really sound that exciting. And what it was is they said, we want to start after-school programs in Ecuador and build a center. So I'm like, oh, okay, um, uh, uh, you know, we had done wells and refugees and, and Syria, and it just seemed like a little... So I, so I said, well, let me go check it out. And I, they sent me out just to kind of get the, the program in place. And um, so I flew to Ecuador, and I went to a town called Mata, and I met the couple who will be working with one of our Envision uh, missionaries. They went to Ecuador to work in a children's home. And so they raised their money. They were all excited of helping all these orphans. And they go all the way to Ecuador. And when they get there, they realize there's no orphans in the home. 
And so they, they begin to kind of live there for a while and begin to understand it. And they found out that there's a serious problem. See, that home was full of children that were so badly abused by their families that the government took them away and put them in this home. The problem is, in their regulation, after six months, if they are not found another home to go to, they send the kid right back to the same situation. And so they said, well, why is this happening? Why are there so many children? Where are the parents? What, what's going on with the parents? And so they went and they researched and they decided to find out what was the backstory of these kids. And what they found out is this. In mo- most of Latin America, the um, elementary school goes up to noon. And at noon, the kids come home. Well, if you're a single mom, who's going to take care of the kids? And so the moms have a hard time going out and finding a job because they have to take care of their kids. So they're forced to do one of two things. Either they go find a man that will take care of them, but may mistreat the kids, or some of them just sell themselves. And their customers think if they have access to the mother, they also have access to the children. And so these homes are just full of abused children. And so they bring them in and they minister them for six months. But in six months, they go right back to where they were. And so they said, we got to change this. If Jesus is the answer, then he changes situations, right? And the church has got to do this. So what they did is they've come up with this program where they do an after-school program, and the kids then go to this after-school program, which allows the mothers to get a job, and then the parents are required to entering a mentoring program that will help them economically, but also help them be better parents and ultimately lead them to Christ. So it seemed... We want to be the answer. We don't just want to be a band-aid, right? And so, and that's because that's what Jesus is about. He's not just about ignoring it or just, you know. And so, um, I was all excited. And so they said, well, there's one last place we want to take you before you go. I said, okay. They said, we want to take you to one of these homes. I said, oh, Okay. So we arrived at a home. There were about 30 kids. Some of them were badly scarred from abuse. Some had bruises around their wrists where they had been tied. And we're walking around and they're explaining their program and what they do and everything was clean and nice and the people there were loving on the kids. And all of a sudden this three or four-year-old, I'm not good at guessing ages, little girl, came up to me and put her hands up. And I reached down and picked her up. And I continued the tour. And she talked and played with my beard and we're just having a good time walking around. 
And then it was time to leave. And they tried to take her out of my arms. And she refused to go. And she clung to me. She literally had been returned, I think, three times. And she went right back into the same abusive stuff. And here's this little girl just clinging on to me. And I said, let me just hold her a little while longer. And so I held her. And, um, and as I'm holding her, I, I, I begin to tell us what statistics say her life will become. And I'm holding this little precious little girl that just wants a daddy. And I begin to realize that statistically says that by the time she's a teen, that she'll be selling herself. And that she'll be abused and mistreated and, and possibly even a drug addict. And she'll suffer and she'll be poor. And then she'll have children that will do the same thing. And I'm holding this kid, and and as I do it, I begin to just see her life, and and she's so precious. And I begin to weep, and I'm holding this little girl, and they're, they're trying to rip her out of my arms. And as I stood there, the word that came to me was more. We need to do more to reach more people. And the Lord said, I said, well, Lord, how? How can we possibly do more? And he said it simply. You need more of me so that you can help more of them. You need more of me so you can help more of them. And he explains this real easily in, uh, or in, um, in the Bible at one of the, uh, Matthew chapter nine. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can just listen along. Matthew chapter nine. And I think it, he illustrates why we need more of him so clearly here. And he goes on and he said, and Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on him. See, we need more of him because if we have more him, we'll have more compassion on them. Amen? We need more of him so we can help more of them. And I love this passage because then he goes on and he says, he says very clearly, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. The harvest is is huge. 
There are billions. There's hurting and pain everywhere. And Jesus is the answer. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, go and do it. Is that what he says here? What does he tell his disciples? Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. See, it starts with us praying. Amen? The most powerful thing we can do in missions is pray. And when we pray and get more of him, then we will help more of them. Right? Isn't that what this passage is saying? Have we begun to realize the power we have to change the world through prayer? Four weeks ago today, my mom died. She had been a missionary kid growing up on the field and then became a missionary and then she was a pastor's wife. Almost 50 years of service with the Alliance. The thing about it was, she was a teacher. She had so many gifts. But the one thing she did better than anything else was get on her knees and fight like a man. When I was in college, I was going through a time where I was pretty angry about some stuff. And she was half a world away. But she knew it. Because she prayed for me. And praying isn't just talking, it's listening. And so she wrote me this letter, and I remember, I'll never forget getting this letter. And in the letter, she, she tells this story. And she talked about this missionary family that was living in West Africa, Central Africa. And um, they were church planters, and the father had gone out and come back that Sunday, and his car had fallen in, in, the, in a bridge. They got it out, um, but water got in the engine, and he had to walk the, west, the rest of the way home to his mud brick house that had no running water, no electricity, and no solar panels. When he got to the home, he found that his oldest son had, was fighting another bout with malaria. In fact, this time it was worse than he had ever had. In fact, they said that uh, they took his temperature and it went to 106 degrees. They had no fridge. They had a kerosene freezer. And so they would take uh, towels and put them in the freezer and try to get them cold and was pouring water on the body of their son to try to keep his temperature down. And they fought for his life all night long. And in the morning, like in many places in Africa, they actually do what the Bible says and they bear one another's burdens. And so the entire church showed up and they sit around the outside of the house and they sing and they pray and they refuse to be entertained. But they're there just to show you that we're bearing this burden with you. So the mother 
realized her son's temperature began to drop a little bit, and so she ran. She thought she'd go back and get uh, a quick nap, and so she set her alarm clock and took a quick nap, and when she came, she woke up, she went back in to check on her son, and when she walked in the room, she noticed, she walked in, that his entire body had turned black, and that he was dead. She said the mother screamed and everybody ran in the room and she cried out and said, God, give my son breath. And they said, it's okay, madame. It's okay. He's with Jesus now. And she said, no, in the name of Jesus, give my son breath. And they said, it's okay, madame. He's with Jesus. The mother a third time says, you've done it before. You can do it again. There's nothing you cannot do. And I'm asking you in your powerful name to let my son live. And her son began to breathe. She went on in this letter and she said, I'm writing this to tell you this because I want you to realize what you mean to God because I was that mother and you were that son. See, I stand here today as evidence of a mother that understood what it was to go into the throne room of grace and shake the throne because she knew that her daddy was listening. Amen? Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. We need more of him. so we can help more of them. And we find more of him when we pray. I'm not even asking, I know I'm a missionary, I'm not asking for money. I'm not even asking you to go right now. I'm just asking you to pray. And then the Lord will send you. And he will guide you. I was uh, in Burkina Faso back for a trip. And I had just gone through an extremely busy time. Uh, literally three or four weeks. of 20 hours a day. And um, I was suffering a little bit. I had a little bit of malaria. And um, I've gotten so I... It's fever is 103 or under. You can usually just fight through it. And uh, so I wasn't feeling good. And a young couple had come out, and they were trying to decide whether they were going to stay there, and they were trying to learn everything. So we, one day we were going to just take them around and tell them what they could buy there. So if they came out, they wouldn't have to bring certain stuff with them. Turns out that day was Ramadan. And so uh, we weren't able to go, but it was a Thursday. And I remember hearing that they were... From uh, they had a child from compassion. I also knew that um, 
that uh, the Lord had been speaking to me and telling me I needed to go and meet with Pastor Tandemba. And I knew that at his church, they had a compassion center. So I thought I could hit two birds with one stone and I'll drive them out. They'll see the compassion center and, um, you know, and then I can meet with the pastor. And so I was just tired and sick. And really all I wanted to do go back is, is just lie down for a few hours and, and try to get my strength up. But uh, I felt like the Lord told me to go. So my son always likes to go because there's always a soccer game and my daughter always likes to go because there's always babies to hold. And so um, jumped in our car and we went over to the guest house and the lady came down and said, uh, I'm sorry, but my husband's too sick to go. So I said, well, do you still want to go? And she goes, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm like, yes, I can go home and sleep. And I heard the Lord say, yeah, you can go home and sleep if you want to disobey me. So finally I said, you know what, I'm going to go. If you'd like to come, you can. She goes, Phew, I really wanted to come. So we began to drive out there, and we drove to get out there. I had to drive along a cemetery. And as I was uh, driving, all of a sudden I noticed that there were no tracks on the road and had rained uh, the night before. Well, that's a bad sign. It usually means that there's a bridge out or that uh, the um, or that there's thieves up the road and you know they're going to block the road and rob you. Well, I could see pretty far there was a lot of visibility and and I was driving my Land Cruiser um, that I put a snorkel on so I can drive through six foot of water. It's not like y'all's wimpy cars and uh, um, so I figured if I had to I'd drive through the river because I've done that before. So um, so anyways. Um, I thought, I'm going to keep going. And so I just kept driving, and uh, I looked and said, hey, it's kind of, there's a little bit eerie that there's nobody here. And about that time, a car came out of nowhere and came flying up on my bumper. And they had torn out part of their fender and um, right on my bumper. Well, there might have been a little bit of flesh there, but something happened. Also, my car slowed way down. And um, I just didn't seem to be able to go fast anymore. And um, the road was really bad, so it's not like you could get around. And so um, I was pretty frustrated, and this car was just right there. And so I just kept driving slowly and driving slowly. And um, finally, I did start to feel bad, and we got in a big uh, area. So I pulled over and let the car by. What I didn't realize is when I pulled over... I blocked a dirt road that went to the main paved road that went to Ghana, the country, country south of us. So this car goes taking off past us, flying. And I'm like, that guy's going to slide off the road because it's slippery. And about 30 seconds later, a guy comes flying up on a motorbike, and he has a handgun, a pistol, and he's waving it telling me to go spin the car out. Well, I have my kids with me, and you got a gun. I'm not going to go chase. I, I wasn't in the mood to be in a gunfight that day, especially since I didn't have one. About 30 seconds after him, a pickup came flying up, and there were guys in the back, and they had guns and clubs and everything. And I said, oh, this car's been stolen. 
I said, well, he's not going to make it through that hole up there. He's going to get stuck. And sure enough, he slid off the road. Well, then they started to catch up. Well, in our country, there's not a lot of thievery. And the reason why is uh, if they catch a thief, they beat him pretty good a lot of times to death. And so, I mean, the city's three million people, and I feel safer there than in a town in America of 200,000. And um, so I was like, but I don't really like my kids to see this. So I, I took a back road and went to the church and had a great time with Pastor Tanemba and drove home and didn't think anything of it. And that night, next morning, there's a knock at my door and it's Pastor Tanemba. I'm going, Pastor, I just went out and saw you yesterday and it cost money for you to come all the way in town. What are you doing here? He goes, well, I had to come and tell you a story. I said, what's the story? He said, uh, do you remember there was a car behind you on the way out? I said, yeah. He says, well, right after you left, the military police came to the church. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, uh, and they said that um, Compassion International that meets every Thursday, kids that were walking there were being kidnapped and they were kidnapped, taken to other countries and sold as slaves or as uh, sacrifices because there's some cults there that require ch- children's sacrifices. And um, I said, well, that's terrible. He said, yeah. Well, the military police said that they were getting ready to shut down Compassion International, which right now feeds like 60,000 kids. And their, their lives would be in jeopardy if they couldn't eat. And so he said, but here's the thing. You know that car that was chasing you? I said, yeah. He said, they had just kidnapped two children, and they were trying to get away. I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. And a military policeman said that this big white angel in this big white Land Cruiser had blocked the road so they could catch up to him. <laughs> they interrogated The people they caught, they gave up the whole network. They were able to rescue a bunch of children and shut down the network, and Compassion International did not have to be shut down. Here's the thing. They saw me as a hero. But all I did was obey. See, when we obey... God can do incredibly greater things than we even imagine possible. I'd done a lot of things that summer, but those three hours God used to do something greater than I had done all summer. Amen? This morning, you heard from God's word. You heard. He didn't say, if you have time, maybe you could ask the Lord of the harvest. He said, ask. It's a command. And this morning I said, we need more of him so we can help more of them. Because when he lives in us, we're not going to be able to ignore the hurting and the poor and the lost. Because the compassion of Jesus Christ will burn inside of us. Amen?
And so we need more of him. And how do we get more of him? We're obedient to the command. And we ask. So this morning, I want to ask you, will you obey? Will you obey? Will you obey? Will you pray but not just pray? Will you pray with, like my mother does, where she answers the throne of grace and she asks and great things because she knows her daddy can do anything? Will you pray for your families? Will you pray for your children? Your children face more in one day than we did in our whole education as far as sin. Will you pray for your pastors and for your church? Will you pray for your neighbor that doesn't know Jesus? Will you pray for the missionaries that without your prayers are dead? Will you pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers? Will you obey?